Welcome back to the 430 Movie. We got our expert programmers here to curate Fantasy Theme Week's of classic film from 1998 film directed by Steven Soderbergh called Out of Sight yes Soderbergh directs it with such a sort of confident self-assured style Lex Luthor in Superman what is it about Gene Hackman that uh... his performance it's off the charts but still in reality fiendishly gifted 1981 Sam Raimi Opus The Evil Dead oh yes fine choice Sam Raimi invented entirely new ways to get shots that should not have been possible with the amount of money that he did not have charade oh directed by Stanley Donnan it's a textbook screenplay it's just effortless and there's not a wrong note in this movie can't say enough great things about it we'll be back next Friday with an all new episode of the 430 movie wherever you listen to podcasts join us now for the 430 Movie. The 430 Movie Podcast is available weekly wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. Download it today. Hello and welcome to Best Movies Never Made, the podcast where we talk about interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. Most of the time, the movies you're trying to make don't get made. Like, four of them may happen, one of them may happen, none of them may happen, and I'll be attached to three more things by end of summer. Turn the script into something resembling Unforgiven with Conan. Yeah. Sadly, the rights expired and the whole thing just like went away overnight. New episodes will be available every other Monday. We won't see you at the movies. Best Movies Never Made, as featured in Entertainment Weekly, is available wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. If you think you felt a great disturbance in the force, you're not wrong. Ed Gross and me, Mark A. Altman, have a new oral history coming out this July from St. Martin's Press. It's Secrets of the Force, the complete, uncensored, unauthorized oral history of the Star Wars saga. So wherever you buy books, audio and video, pick it up today, pre-order, and you can learn the secrets of the Force. And don't miss... Our oral history of Star Trek in stores now. And of course, nobody does it better. The complete oral history of James Bond in digital, hardcover, paperback, and audio. That is all. Hi, this is Peter Holmstrom. And this is Lisa Kling. And this is the Inglorious Trexperts podcast, where industry professionals take a deep dive into the world of Star Trek. On today's show, we are joined by a very special guest. He was a series regular for seven years on Star Trek Voyager, as well as having the rare distinction of having appeared on screen with four Starfleet captains of the leads of their shows. Um, I said that wrong, but oh well. Uh, he is uh, <laughs> Mr. Vulcan himself. He is Mr. Tim Russ. Welcome, sir. Glad to be here. Thank you. Come in. You wished to see me. We've known each other for how long? Approximately 20 years. We've served on three starships together. I was present at your daughter's Kulinar. I consider you one of my closest friends. And I regard you with the same esteem. I've always been honest with you. 
But you've been keeping something from me. I don't know what you mean. Don't you? It took exhaustive research, sifting through terraquads of data, separating fact from rumor. But eventually I arrived at the truth. Captain. Happy birthday. Thank you. So, it's not long before you hit the big three digits, hmm? Indeed. Have you informed anyone else of your discovery? Don't worry, Tuvok. My lips are sealed. Well, you're supposed to blow out the candle. That is not a Vulcan custom. Humor me. Captain to the bridge. Well? It was a fire hazard. It's um, it's a thrill to have you here. I um, I'm so curious if I could just I'll start the ball rolling here with a question about your early career because I find what's so great about Star Trek is that it it takes it. You know, Leonard Nimoy once said that when he was first getting into the business, how um, his agent kind of told him, you're either going to be a huge hit in six months or you're going to take 15 years to make a career in Hollywood. Because like you either get discovered in that and you know hit that big role that just makes you a smash hit or you have to work really hard at it and you have to like, put in the time, put in the energy, put in the effort. And it seems like Star Trek always takes such... Uh, thrives by 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 utilizing those those actors those journeyman actors who work hard at their craft who really hone in on their abilities and i'm curious you had a similar career as leonard nimoy you know you worked very hard for a number of years in hollywood before kind of getting those bigger roles and i'm, I'm curious if you could just because it, it seems the industry in a way has changed a lot since that since you know more recent years you know i'm curious if you could tell us a bit about starting out here in hollywood Yes, well, it, the, uh, in fact, the landscape for uh, the business is, is quite different than it was when I started. Um, in some ways, uh, there are some positives. In other ways, there are some negatives. And um, generally, uh, the conversation I have with actors who ask me, you know, you know, what's, you know how do I get started? Or do you have any advice on how to, you know, begin uh, to get started in a career? I usually tell them, you know, you might want to think about something else. Um, generally, uh, when I started out, uh, the, the landscape was very different. Television at the time, there were only three or four networks. There was no streaming. There was no cable when I started out, really. Um, there, uh, so a lot of the uh, shows and movies and opportunities were not there. But on the, at the, uh, on the other side of the coin, most of the production was being done here in L.A. Yes. And that was for all the shows on, on the three or four networks. And that included a lot of uh, small roles, supporting roles, featured roles. Uh, guest star roles, things like that. So those parts were available uh, for, for actors to get into, you know, um, at the entry level and then work their way up. And uh, I was very lucky. It took me about four or five years to get the ball rolling uh, from the time I arrived. Um, you know, number of agents that didn't work out, et cetera, et cetera. And then I just finally got uh, one break uh, for a feature film project that I worked on. Um, and after that, uh, then it was a continuous sort of uh, role. Um, I ended up working mostly in television. That was my bread and butter. 
Um, the TV stuff was, uh, there was a lot of it, um, you know, with the residuals and the things you could live off the uh, proceeds of, of the projects that you worked on. And uh, once you're in the loop with the casting directors and that kind of thing, then it just seems to sort of have its own momentum. And that's how it was at the time uh, for me. Um, it is very different now. And uh, although there might be a lot more projects being done, uh, generally the pay is not as good. Um, there still are a lot of actors who are vying for those roles and a lot of the projects shoot out of town. They don't shoot yeah. here. So all of the smaller supporting roles are no longer available. There's a being cast locally where the projects are shooting, usually Canada or, or maybe New York or, or Atlanta. So the work is now shifted outside of the city. Uh, the bulk of the series and the movies are mostly out of town now. So that's, you know, that's what's changed. I think, uh, you know, uh, it is true uh, in terms of what they say about that, in terms of the, the possibilities for how your career can go. You know, my favorite saying is there are no rules and they are strictly adhered to. Um, <laughs> Very true. There's, there's no guaranteed formula. There's no, you know, magic, uh, uh, you know, for something, you know, way that you could just make things happen. And, uh, it's very unpredictable and it's, and it's, uh, and it's a lot of, you know, it's a tremendous amount of competition for the, yeah. for the resources that are here and the, the roles and parts. So, yeah, um, I think I was lucky to get here when I did and, and, um, and consequently, um, uh, still, you know, able to, to, to still work and book things and, and projects on a kitchen, but I was, you know, I, I was just lucky and it is a, a matter of right time and right place. And it's also a matter of being, uh, right for whatever role it is and uh, and then having the opportunity the, the door open for you to be able to go in and get it. So how did you first hook up with Star Trek? Well, Star Trek was just a process of reading for the uh, reboot um, for Next Generation uh, when it first started. I was just brought in to read for Jordi um, LaForge's role um, uh, and, and consequently uh, Deep Space Nine's Doctor roles to dig, and then uh, to read for guest star roles on the shows. Then eventually, I booked a couple of those, and uh, mm -hmm. then went to uh, the feature role in Generations, and then Voyager. So it's a seven-year process, that whole thing. Yeah, basically seven years, and they reuse the actors that they book on the shows. They use them for other episodes or other parts. That was, mm -hmm. you know, getting in the door was the main thing. And then after that, it, you know, eventually paid off to, you know, then creating the series and having that role available to actually be cast on. Yeah. You know, I'm so, so curious. You mentioned auditioning for Jordi LaForge. And, and I'm curious if you could talk a bit about the audition process for that. I mean, uh, today we think of Star Trek as like top tier material. Obviously, we're doing a podcast just about Star Trek. You know, it's like we think highly of it. But at the time, I mean, Next Generation, it was it was kind of a low budget show and it was in first round syndication. It was a, a it, untested waters, I suppose, is the best way to say it. Um, you know, talk to us a bit about that. Like, like, how did you find it? What did you think of it as a great opportunity? Like, oh, I'm so excited about this, or was it just one of a hundred auditions you went for? Um, I think at the time, um, I was not, uh, I wasn't sure um, about what the future of that show was going to be. It was simply a role, 
like many others that came across my desk that I went to go read for, I knew it was Roddenberry. I knew it was a reboot of the Trek series. Sure. And I thought, well, it's probably going to be a, you know, it's going to be on the air and it's going to run for, you know, a certain amount of time. So it's a pretty good opportunity to try to shoot for. So it was definitely something to look forward to, you know, as opposed to, you know, just a pilot that somebody's putting together and we don't, you know, you have no idea what's going to happen with it. There was a chance that show is going to, uh, to get off the ground because uh, it's got a history. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's got a, it's a franchise already and it's, and it had a huge, you know, relatively enthusiastic and fairly large fan base. So I figured, well, that's a good shot. Let's go try to you know, see what we can do with that. And if we're, you know, if we're lucky, we will. So, uh, and it was that same way for the other subsequent reads uh, for the, for Deep Space Nine, same thing. Uh, because by that time, the next gen had been on the air for a number of years. So I figured, well, even more so that show's going to be on for a while. Yeah. And I mean, when Voyager came up and I thought, well, geez, the other shows, one's run seven years, the other one's running four or five. So I'm like, this is really the place to be, hmm. you know, to try to target that show uh, and to be on it, you know, and not to be, you know, unavailable because I'm doing an episode of Baywatch or something. So, <laughs> um, so you wanted, I wanted to be around and available uh, when Voyager was casting, you know, so I could have a shot at it. And you still had to read for it, even though they already knew you from several other series? Yeah, they did bring me in to read. Uh, and I think it was, you know, it, it, they just wanted to see what I was going to do with it because I hadn't read for that role and it was very specific. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't really done anything uh, that was right down the, down the pipe as far as that same kind of thing. So right. they would have had to bring me in just as a formality, just so everybody could see who was involved in the project would be able to see and say, yeah, sign off, uh, which made total sense to me. Sure. Uh, it's important. You know, if it would have been a network, I would have had to have done two reads. I would have had to test as well for the network execs. But in this case, uh, UPN was basically, it was all Rick Berman and, and, uh, and, and Pillar and, and Taylor. And they, I didn't, there wasn't a big room full of people. It was just those guys and, and maybe the couple of writers, there was nothing, there wasn't a network test right. thing for that because that's they were just starting out at that point in time so it was a very small deal i think they had a lot of power and control over that series mm-hmm. uh, without a whole lot of inter- intervening from anybody upstairs and you were already a fan of star trek weren't you and a fan of leonard nimoy well i had actually worked with leonard nimoy uh, on stage years and years before that um in a classical play and <clears throat> and I had watched the shows growing up because we only had three networks and <laughs> they ran Star Trek in syndication in infinitum along with mm-hmm. Gilligan's Island and I love <laughs> I could tell you as much about those shows as I could Trek it's all the, <laughs> that's, that's what we watched you know um, so I was very familiar with the show just by virtue of having been saturated by it, you know, for years. And, and, uh, and, and, but some of the episodes were quite good. They were written very, very well. I mean, there was smart stuff in in, uh, Trek and it always has been smart stuff. It's, it's stories and, you know, it's uh, themes, it's concepts, it's, you know, ways of looking at humanity in a different light. That's, Science fiction allows you to do that in general. Yeah. 
when you were uh, auditioning for the role of, of Tuvok, um, did you go back and, and specifically like watch some of the other, you know, whether it's uh, uh, Leonard Nimoy or Mark Leonard uh, and their performances as Vulcans before that? No, I didn't need to. I remembered most of what I had seen already. Um, so I just kind of, uh, you know, put together an amalgam of, of, of those characters and seeing what this, this character might walk and talk like. You know, uh, it just, the, the main goal is just to be convincing uh, to not only producers, but obviously the fans that, that, the, that the character was indeed Vulcan. So the attitude and the walk and everything else had to be right. The voice had to be right. You know, uh, if I was five foot two and, you know, 270 pounds and had a dialect, I wouldn't be playing the role. It's just, <laughs> probably not. Just, and you have to, you have, you have to, you have to be the right, it's the right fit. For the role it's just that simple um yeah. most there there's a consistent um type of roles that i've played over the years that are you know within a certain range and that's where the bread and butter is and that's mm -hmm. you know if you're if you're starting out as an actor you have to learn where your you know where your strengths and weaknesses are and you go for the strengths what's your what's your what are the roles you're most likely to play what are the parts you know those are the parts you're going to get cast for Mm -hmm. So if I already have that going on, it's going to happen, you know, and maybe a, a few elements of the personality traits that might go along with that character. Sure. As my friends like to point out all the time. So. Mm -hmm. The Morok took them. They're gone. The other children aren't within scanning range of this tricorder. That is the only thing we know for certain at this time. You don't understand. We have to get away from here. Please, can we go? I'm scared. Please, Tuvok. Children. You are allowing your fears to guide you. You must learn to exercise control over your own imagination. But the Morok! Yes, the existence of such a creature is one possibility. However, your emotional reactions are preventing you from accurately judging how unlikely that is to be true. I can't help it. I'm scared. I believe you can help it. Vulcan children learn to detach themselves from their emotions at an early age. How? First, you must focus on the object of your fear. Picture the Morok clearly in your minds. That image is accompanied by an emotional response. Describe for me what that feeling is like. It makes my stomach all tight. I feel like I want to run, but my legs won't work. Now, if you could see this emotion in physical form, what would it look like? It's like this big black cloud with lots of thunder and lightning all around us. Then imagine a strong wind is pushing that cloud away. Watch as your fear grows more distant. It is no longer a part of you. Once you begin to detach yourselves from your emotional responses, you come closer to controlling them. Eventually, they will be eliminated altogether. Do you live your whole life without feeling anything? More accurately, we strive to control our feelings. You don't get scared? Ever? No. Even when your shuttle crashed? That is correct. But... What if there was this big, hairy Tardis coming after you? The circumstances are irrelevant. A Vulcan approaches every situation logically. Now I must begin work on my shuttle. We will resume the search for the other children once the sensors are operational. I expect each of you to sit quietly and not touch any of the equipment. We promise. <laughs> what inspired you to direct A Living Witness? Um, because um, because uh, um, Rick Berman uh, and, and, and 
quite the number of thanks to him for having make that opportunity possible for the uh, uh, for the for the for the actors to be able to do that. I just was interested in in getting behind camera because it was another creative challenge, and mm-hmm. so I decided to ask him if we could, you know, I could get on the internship sort of thing, the train mm-hmm. to get a slot at some point in time. And it was just wonderful to have the, the chance to do so and to work with the actors on that story in particular, which yeah. is. I really loved because I loved the subject of history to begin with and uh, and the revisionist history theme and the way it played out was just fascinating. So I was lucky to draw a good story and um, and be able to shoot that. And, uh, and, 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 and directing as a whole is just another, it's a, it's an outlet. It's a creative outlet. That's very, very different uh, mm-hmm. than, than acting of course. And uh, every time that I uh, agree to do or sign on to shoot a project, uh, you know, three days in, I'm wondering why in the hell did I do this? It's <laughs> absolutely exhausting. Um, yeah. But yeah, it, it was uh, it was a it was a really good opportunity, and I'm I'm very glad that uh, he gave us you know the chance to do so. It's really nice that that happened. Um, You've directed several other short films, right? I directed some pilot presentations, three features, um, and a couple of, of shorts. Yeah, yeah, that uh, people have put together. You know, asked me to do or whatever different uh, comedy, sci-fi, freaking uh, medieval piece, yeah. a bunch of stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's been fun. I mean, and and working on uh, a couple of my own right now with uh, two different producers. Uh, we'll see how those mm-hmm. all go. Everybody's, you know, on that on that train as well. That train, you know, it's different than the one is for acting, but it's still the same principle. It's an absolute grind and a slog to get, you know, whatever it is you want to work on or whatever it is you want to put together and, and, and get someone else interested in, uh, that is the key. Mm-hmm. You know, if I had Jeff Bezos money, I could just go out and do what the hell I wanted to do. And I could have my own goddamn <laughs> network and make my own show. Yeah. But since I don't have that, it is you have to find somebody <laughs> who is the champion to champion the projects that you're putting together and uh mm-hmm. that's the slog you know so it's a it's very different than trying to get work as an actor it's you know obviously a different highway but it's still the same sort of drive yeah it's so it's so interesting too because for some actors who and and creatives who have worked in star trek you know they have their yeah. time they do their job and then they, you know they leave it there but but you've continued to come back to star trek through uh some some i suppose the best way to describe it would be unofficial films and and television yeah. shows yeah. um yeah. how did you first get involved with that i mean what what drew you to do it those projects they just called me out of the blue mm. wow. um I mean, one of them they didn't even have a script uh when they called me uh, huh. There was no script. We just said we we're going to raise some money to do this. Uh, what that was at the time was a uh, because there was no Trek on series. There's no series. Yeah, it was on the air. So they wanted to make a pilot presentation, which is technically what that was, hmm. and uh, pitch it to the networks. And so I said, "Well, sure, let's." Uh, and we, but you we had no story, so we kind of worked together to create a story, and. Um, and we did. I mean, Gods and Men I did first was was the same thing. They called me out of the blue. They wanted to do this story. We'd had no script and we put the story together and we did it. And that was a, just a regular full-on project that was based on Trek. Yeah. The second one was a pilot presentation, Renegades, which they said, well, we want to pitch this to CBS. I said, well, that sounds cool. I'll shoot something cool and see what they say. 
uh, whole new crew, whole new static, whole new look and feel. And we'll see what happens. And they just called me again to, you know, um, would you come and shoot this thing? And I said, yeah, I'll do it. Um, You've done some voice acting as well, haven't you? Oh, yeah, yeah. I've been doing that for a while, 15 years or so, or maybe longer, 20, 15, 20. Yeah, um, a lot of, uh, a handful of commercials, but mostly video games. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been the, the majority of the work I've done. Some podcast work I just did recently for a drama, like a, like a radio production kind of drama, and then um, a couple of commercials here and there, uh, and then the video games. A lot of, and a, three or four audiobooks, four or five audiobooks in the past. But yeah, voice acting as well. Yeah. Yeah. That just, I don't know, that came about accidentally. Uh, when I was on the show, they asked me to do couple of audiobooks. So we started out doing audiobooks. I did a couple of Trek audiobooks and I did one other one that had nothing to do with Trek. But uh, and then from there it went to uh, uh, video games and things like that. Well, I've, I've listened to those audiobooks and they are excellent. So thank you for doing <laughs> this. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. Thank you. Those are a tremendous amount of work. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah, just a lot of work. I'm, and a fraction of the pay, I'm sure. And a fraction of the pay. Not, <laughs> so, much, not so much fun uh, from that. I, the okay. video games are, are definitely easier. Um, they are a certain amount of work, but they're not nearly as hard as the uh, audiobooks. It's always, it's interesting because today video game technology has changed so much. When you go in, are you a, a voice in a booth or are you actually in like a mocap suit and actually acting I've, out? Or I've done mocap. Um, awesome. I did one mocap, full body suit, et cetera, et cetera, uh, which my agent said, oh, it's going to be so much fun. No, it's not a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, it's actually a lot of work and it's miserably uncomfortable in a wetsuit. Um, uh, yeah, I did one. Uh, I forgot what the name of it is, but uh, and the rest of them, have, uh, one of them was also a mocap helmet where you just wear a rig on your head and you've got a camera that's focused on your face and you've got all of these marks on your face to, to match and to follow the expressions of your face. Mm-hmm. And they animate, they will animate the facial structure to that as you're doing dialogue and stuff, just interesting and uncomfortable. Um, so, and I did that one recently, but the rest of them have just been in a booth with a microphone and, you know, um, doing all the dialogue over and over and over and it's like 300 pages of dialogue. And I did one series that was called Symbiotic Titans. I worked for a cartoon network for them on a series for about a season and a half doing a character on there as well. And you've been pursuing your singing career as well. Is that true? Well, singing has always been around. I've been uh, playing guitar and singing for 45 years. So um, I still continue to do so because um, I did book some work a couple of years ago. Well, I was in 2019, the end of 2019, I booked a gig on NCIS New Orleans because I was able to play guitar. Hmm. Ah. I had to actually show them that I could play guitar and, and sing as well in order to get the role. So mm-hmm. uh, because they wanted to film the music uh, all live, not to playback. So they wanted real musicians for that role. So was able to book it so i stay playing i like to i like playing i enjoy it i've um, got my own band and recordings and things like that i do enjoy playing live and i just w- i want to keep doing it because i don't you know tomorrow such could come up because i will do you play guitar yes i do uh, do you sing yes i do mm-hmm. so that opportunity can come up you know in 20 minutes from now and mm-hmm. i could say okay i'm ready to go 
um, a double threat for now. I don't do that much dancing, but the, but the singing and acting is, that can be uh, beneficial. It's funny because it loops back to one of Lisa's episodes of Voyager where she had it in the script where you sing to a number of children. Oh, yes. <laughs> which, um, yes. Which we just did a commentary for a few weeks ago. Yeah. And uh, Innocence. It was Innocence, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Lullaby. It was a good story. Don't Vulcans tell bedtime stories? If my children had difficulty sleeping, I would play music for them. I like music. Unfortunately, I don't have my lute. What's that? It is a five-stringed instrument tuned on a diatonic scale. It can be very soothing. My youngest son was particularly fond of it. He always used to ask him to play Phalor's Journey. It is a tale of enlightenment consisting of 348 verses. It may not be necessary to include the complete narrative. Phalor was a prosperous merchant who went on a journey to gain greater awareness. Through storms, he crossed the Voroth Sea to reach the clouded shores of Rahl, where old Tapara offered truth. He traveled through the windswept hills and crossed the barren fireplains to find the silent months of Kerr. Still unfulfilled, he journeyed home, told stories of the lessons learned, and gained true wisdom by the I like that story. It's, it's, I was it's, really happy with the way the episode turned out. Oh, it was wonderful. Uh, one of the few the episodes that I actually remember. I don't remember a lot of them, <laughs> but uh, I do remember that one. And, uh, and I do relate to it, you know, often uh, because people, add, you know, I said, when I compare myself to Spock's character, I said, well, my character had children uh, and he also was married. So uh, he had a wife and, and in that episode sort of reflects how he might've raised his own children. And that was, you know, kind of an insight episode in that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it was very cool. Plus the twist is, is also very cool as well. Yeah. Yeah, it was a good twist. <laughs> it's such an interesting character for, for a Vulcan and, and the way you portray it was was fantastic in the sense of like, yes, you do have children and yes, you you have a wife and and there's this like underpinning of emotion, but it's it's a subtle thread, you know, it's and it it's played so marvelously. Like it's it's Spock, you know, sometimes they lean in and it's like his emotion episode or something like that. But Tuvok, mm -hmm. you kind of track his arc over seven years. And I always yeah, just yeah. really appreciated that. You can't do anything without, you know, the writers and stuff. And people always ask you, well, you know, what you know how did you you know if you're asking about how did you create the character i didn't the writers created the character where the writers give you the you know the openings and the opportunities the writers are the ones that uh that give you the backstory and give you the nuances and, and give you the colors of the character over the period of the show and everybody's show is the same you know you, you the first pilot episode you don't know who anybody is at all yeah. you're just yeah. introducing these people and they have just the the basic outline of their character. You know, nothing about them, you know, where they came from, you don't know why they're motivated to do what they do. 
until you see their backstory, until you see mm -hmm. their personal stories. You have to have a number of those to really give the character a foundation. So uh, it's gonna, the character's gonna change over the years. Um, it's that simple. And uh, even- There's definitely some back and forth. I mean, we do take some inspiration from the actors. Yeah. You know, I mean, we would see, you know, what you could do particularly well, yeah. you know, and, and to see, you know, again, how much, how much hints of emotion we could give Tuvok to do, you know, because you were always so good about showing, you know, what, what is he hiding essentially, yeah, you know, what, what yeah. is he wrestling with? Yeah. Um, and so I know that we were all, you know, inspired to, to basically give you more to do. <laughs> I looked at the team and I tried to make it boil, but nothing happened. Without Tennis's help, I just can't do it. Nevertheless, your psychokinetic abilities are still part of you. They might resurface one day. To be honest, I never want to see that part of myself again. To which part are you referring? To the part of me that got pleasure from destroying those plants in the Aeroponics Bay. To the part of me that was tempted to go with Tannis. I never realized I had such dark impulses. Without the darkness, how would we recognize the light? Do not fear your negative thoughts. They are part of you. They are a part of every living being, even Vulcans. You? The Vulcan heart was forged out of barbarism and violence. We learned to control it, but it is still part of us. To pretend it does not exist is to create an opportunity for it to escape. Yeah, I, I you know, I, it was um, to, to, to put him in circumstances that are very difficult for him are really the best, I think, the best opportunities. The yeah. children's episode and gravity and things like that where, you know, he's challenged in areas that he's not that familiar with. You know, yeah. uh, a Vulcan tactical officer, he's got all that dialed in, but all this other stuff, you know, what's going on with this? Uh, you know, a character that wants a relationship with him and, you know, she's mm -hmm. saved his life and rescued him, you know, uh, and he cannot re return the, the, her affection. Um, it's yeah. a very difficult situation. Um, the, uh, the children and how are you going to deal with them? How are you going to relate to them in that circumstance? Uh, rise with Ethan Phillips' character mm -hmm. we went head to head about two different ways of dealing with the situation, and yeah. we were very much in disagreement about it. Yeah, you know, uh, these episodes um, even meld at the very in the first season, trying to figure out you know once he gets into this guy's head as, as to why he's you know committed this violent act. Yeah, what's going yeah. on there? What's the secret there? And all those things flesh out that character, uh, mm -hmm. his relationship with Kess and how we try to help her along in her endeavors. I mean, all these things kind of, they have to give the, you know, the, the, that's what makes the character, gives the character that, that much depth. And that just happens over a period of time, you know, in the show, because there's nine of us and each of us, <laughs> yeah. each of us have to have those episodes to, to get it all together. Maybe flashback where we went all the way back to. Yeah. That was great. What happened before he became a tactical officer? All that stuff is great. Yeah, it gives him. That's where the the mileage is. It's really cool. Mm -hmm. I really liked his friendship with Janeway as well. I like yes. their history together. The history together, yeah, and it shows it in the flashback in particular. We get a chance to mm -hmm. do that. Um, I'm a big uh, fan of and a stickler for the writing. I'm always about you know the writing, and it wasn't so much so. You know, when I started out working, uh, as it is now, because I've worked behind the camera as well. So, you know, I've had to, to, to deal with properties that needed to be, 
revised or rewritten because they simply weren't working or the things that you know needed to be fixed or and uh, so very much attuned to uh, how these projects are written how the stories are being told uh, whether there's holes in them or not uh, what do they make any sense what are the characters consistent or not and what motivates them and, and uh and the structures and how they how the piece flows and things like that. I'm just aware of that now, much more than I used to be. Yeah. For anything that comes across, you know, not my desk to, to look at or whatever. And and the dialogue, same thing. If I get work on a uh, an indie film that comes my way, uh, you know, a lot of times I've had to say, well, yeah, I'll you know do the role, but I got to have some say over the dialogue because. Some of the stuff isn't working, man. You know, it's just yeah. not, not making any sense. It's just not well written, you know? uh, or it's repetitive, or whatever it might be. Yeah. Um, and I have to have a say about how that stuff is written. It, it really is important. Uh, writing is the hardest thing on the planet. Man. Uh, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> I've had to revise a couple of scripts my, on my own, and man, I don't. Psh, I don't enjoy that process at all. Yeah. The writers do what they do. You know, um, and there's, it's DNA. It's not, you go to school all day, man, try to learn that shit. It's not going to work. You have to have the DNA. You got to have yeah. the DNA. If you don't have the DNA, don't bother. Somebody yeah. else over here, do it. Give them some money and let them do it. It's playing around, you know. I feel oh. the same way about acting. Either, either you have it in you or you don't. You either have it in you or you don't. You either have a passion for it and some natural ability and you know, some of that can be uh, learning and classwork and things like that. That helps. But yeah, you got to have the DNA to want to wanna do it and to have a feel for it. Yeah. You have to have that, definitely. And it's all, it comes in different degrees, but obviously you got to have enough to, if you want to be successful in this business in any one of these areas, you got to have something that, yeah. uh, that people can, you know, that people can grab onto uh, and, 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 and it works for you in some mm -hmm. capacity. You know, because you're up against a lot of other folks who are yeah. <laughs> equally good. Yeah, equally as good. Yeah. You know, the, the one thing I've really come to realize just through doing this podcast and working on this podcast was just what an absolute Herculean task just dealing with a season of television was for, for you guys back then, whether it's the writers or the actors. And I'm just amazed that, I mean, I, you know, I'm complaining about not getting a full night's sleep last night that you probably went years without getting a good night's <laughs> sleep. It's just, I'm, I'm so curious about like, how do you cope with that? Like, I'm always fascinated by how actors coped with, with just 18 hour days constantly, you know, getting script rewrites at midnight. I mean, it's, it just sounds maddening, but yeah. It was mostly, um, you know, we, uh, for me, you, you caught some sleep wherever you could get it, mm. um, you know, um, and and you just grind out. And what happens is that you fall into a pattern mm. and you, you simply adjust to that pattern over time. Like it might be super rough the first week or two. And then after that, just sort of, you start to hit cruise and everything just sort of goes and and it, the only time it really hammers you is if you have a heavy episode. So we were lucky in that since we had a nine person cast, because it's not like um, I'm thinking uh, X-Files or something. You only have sure. two characters yeah. and they have to carry the story. So they're literally yeah. almost in every scene. Um, ours was with nine people. So there were weeks that I didn't have to work every single day. And they only work one day or two days or whatever comes out to 
and then the episodes in which you were it was your character you know full on you know those are the weeks that uh you were just dragging your ass through to get it get it done and you got rest wherever you could and uh hopefully there weren't too many changes in lines um and you could get through it but but you know and the days you know even when you weren't it wasn't your premiere episode it might have been two or three days only they were long days you know and on those days yeah you could be exhausted you know by the end of the night you know, two in the morning or whatever it was on a friday you know trying to yeah. get through this stuff um that was not uncommon but uh but again because there was nine people on our cast we didn't have to do that all the time you know yeah. i'm looking at shows now that only have two main actors and i'm like oh my god i, I feel for them because uh it's a tremendous amount of work yeah but they don't have to do 26 episodes a year anymore yeah that's it we also did 26 <laughs> a year yeah they're only doing seven you know eight maybe 13 or something like that yeah Eleven. it's it's not nearly the same as it was before uh and that was common for almost all the shows you get 26, yeah. right? that was it yeah and our show was we had long days man and we we averaged 16 hour days for the first two seasons i think you know yeah I recall so yeah it was a lot of work it was a ton of work sounds like all the actors got along pretty well though we did indeed get along very well we were every you know think about it with the youngest person on it was garrett yeah the rest of us have been working for a while so none of us were you know teenagers we were you know adults and we got a lot of miles on our belt so we'd already we we knew the game we knew how it worked and we knew what the job was and um and we just came on and did it, uh, but we got we got along fine, you know. There was plenty of goofing off, you know. Uh, on the <laughs> yeah, set. I, I hear you were quite the prankster. <laughs> yes, every <laughs> every once in a while, um, <laughs> every once in a while, I had to break the monotony. Um, uh, it did get tedious at times. It did get monotonous at times. You know, I would, sure. there were shots and setups where I just looked at the DP and I said. And we just shot this last week. Can't we just use the same footage over again? <laughs> I basically said the same thing <laughs> in the same position. So, you know, there were, there were times when it got just, oh my God. So when we did get the breaks to do, you know, something different and some really cool stuff, you know, Future's End or the one with the Herogen and stuff, reenacting, uh, you know, um, oh, yeah. scenes from different yeah. time periods. That was, that was a gas, but so those were nice to look forward. Those were nice to have every once in a while. We could break the mold and, you know, go to the swing stage or 16 where there was a lot of uh, very unusual stuff that they would build, towns and forests and laboratories and whatever it might be. Um, those were a nice break from the monotony, so it was good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, series, man. That's, uh, it'll wear you out if you're not careful. <laughs> Actually, I was just watching the uh, Herogen World War II episode the other day, yeah. and I, I, I had forgotten. I was like, "God, that's a huge location there!" Like, I was big this, location. We were I, on a back lot. That yeah. was was that built for the show, or was that like there saving was a, Private a, Ryan reuse or something? Like, we shot was, on a back lot. It was a back lot. I think it was. I want to say Universal. Was it Universal? It was Universal back lot. Oh my god! We shot on their back lot. Amazing. You know, that had to take some money out of the budget. Um, yeah, exactly. Because that was expensive. Yeah. You know, in this town, are you kidding me, man? Oh, yeah. Oh, Paramount yes. wants to shoot in your back lot. Sure. Yeah, that'll be, you know. And uh, and we had the costumes. We had the pyrotechnics. We had the we had guns that fired. I mean, prop gun. I was, it was, it was a blast, man. And the whole thing was just a blast. 
to be able to do that. You know, yeah. um, today they would probably have CGI the whole damn thing, but uh, you know, back then there wasn't any of that. So <laughs> it was only what we put together. So. Yeah. But it looks so magnificent too. Like yeah. I feel like I, I've never, I've watched discovery. I don't think any of it looks grander than, than that episode and, and some of the things you guys did in Voyager, you know, cause there's, cool. there's something to be said about just doing it practically, you know, and yeah, really putting you in there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That world of course has changed, but um, you know, I don't know. I don't I'm marking the days when, you know, they're still going to use live actors for anything. You know? <laughs> it's only a matter of time, I think. So, I suppose so. But luckily, you have a resume with voice acting now. So, it's. Um... Yes, we'll have that until they reproduce the voices yes, electronically as well. It's only a matter of time. I guarantee you. It's the only hitch will be the red carpet. What will they do for the red carpet? That'll be the hitch. <laughs> They'll figure that out too, I'm sure. Yes. And what would the tabloids do with, with, uh, with no. <laughs> oh, yes, right. What the tabloids <laughs> With no actual people, with with yes. you know life altering in, in changes and instances and things going on, there'll be that too. But I guess the tablet will just be out of business, won't they? <laughs> you know, I, I have to ask too because I Voyager has been going undergoing such a resurgence in the past few years, and now there's this documentary that's coming out that was just became the most funded documentary, crowdsourced documentary of all time. You know, it's 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 in many ways more popular now than ever, and. And it's like, what is that like to see that that happen to get this recognition, even though you got plenty of recognition at the time, too, but just to see it continue to influence people's lives in such a profound way? Um, well, you know, I think partly mostly because the, the show is still airing and it's on yeah. Netflix and all the other ones. So that as long as it stays out there, it's still alive and and relevant and uh, and it still has that fan base, which is you know, they're hyper, you know, Star Trek in general. And, and they, and we have, and Voyager itself has a pretty good fan base. You know, we were lucky to have a, a concept that allowed us to, to, uh, to almost, you know, uh, play the same line as the original series. We were able to, to explore uncharted space. And so we had storylines that were almost like a serial, you know, in terms of every week we could do whatever we wanted. Yeah. You know, given where we were located, we could, you know, uh, we don't, we're not tied to, uh, you know, the lore that we are, that was already established in the other quadrant with all the people and the characters coming and going, we could do whatever we wanted. And we did. And uh, I think that's what gave us the legs on that show and made it as popular as it was, you know, out of the, the different franchises. So, you know, um, uh, it, it, for the for them for the show to be on the air and still be running and the, and the fans still be you know the convention is still going on as they were and and uh, and and people doing these bringing these documentaries forth you know it is one hundred percent based on the drive of the fans you know, they, uh, uh, for myself uh, I'm, it's, I, I was paid to show up and hit my marks and say my dialogues. <laughs> That's pretty much the only perspective that I have on it. Uh, everything else is secondary. Uh, so if I get uh, feedback from people about it, which I do pretty often, um, social media and other places, um, and in person at the shows and things, it's sometimes very surprising, and it catches you off guard if you you hear from somebody that uh, your character inspired them to you know to do something with their lives that they weren't you know planning on doing or or that you actually saved them um, from, you know, potential suicide or 
depression or you know something horrible simply because they were watching the show and my character pulled them through very very difficult times that's just startling to me because i don't think about it in that my perspective is about 100 miles away from that it's just something i've been doing you know for years and it's just another character on a show and the same process to get that character on the screen, which is the mechanics and nuts and bolts. You don't really think about the effect that it has on the fans. Man, it is, it is a staggering. It's amazing. I mean, we all, you know, grew up with watching TV shows and actors that we liked, and, you know, characters, you know, the, the people that played them and things, and we might admire them and it would be great to meet them someday, but it uh, generally didn't, the impact it might have had on my life at any point, point in time wasn't that stunning. I mean, it wasn't that dramatic. And this show, it's quite different. Um, the effect of these, the, the, for the stories that we did and the uh, characters that we played, the effect that they have on quite a few people uh, that I've discovered, it's pretty, pretty remarkable. You have to really stand back and look at it in a different light, you know, uh, from what it is that the way we see it, which is just basically work. Mm -hmm. You know, if I got booked on something tomorrow, I'd just go do it and you know, walk away. And if somebody else was affected by that, you know, in our show, the way it is and the way it's written, that's what also causes that kind of reaction from people. If we were just doing some silly space shoot 'em up, it wouldn't have made any difference. I don't think you would have had that kind of reaction from people. You know, we told stories and our characters dealt with a lot of difficult things. And that's what people tune into. That's what people gravitate to, the fans in particular. You know, that's what works on them. That's what affects them. That's what influences them, is how we handle these stories. You know, Trek is about stories, man, stories. You know, if you want to compare it to its rival Star Wars, that's the difference. It is. It's the difference. You know, if you look at the two side by side, it's day and night. Man. You know, uh, one is a big action, shoot them up, and the other one is stories. How was it dealing with the fans and the conventions and basically all the, the fame that surrounded Star Trek? What's that now? How was it dealing with fans and conventions and all the fame that you suddenly found with Star Trek? Well, um, I knew that there was a, the, the convention circuits and stuff, and there was uh, because of the franchises, and there were a lot of people that you know were getting together and wanting to see the folks from the shows. I knew that intellectually. It was the first time I went to one of these. It was uh, uh, viscerally, it was an experience because I, you know, was face to face with people who were really enthusiastic about the show and the character and all that in the, in the, in the basically the franchise and the lore. Um, so you're focused in that, uh, in that environment. It's, 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 you're just surrounded by it and it's a very, you know, focused sort of enthusiasm right then and there, as opposed to just walking in the street and going to the store and things like that. Um, so it's concentrated and it's very intense. Um, that kind of, again, the kind of enthusiasm, that kind of uh, effect that, that this show has on people 
is stunning. Uh, it's not just, oh, I like the show and I enjoy the characters. That's not what it is. It's deeper than that. And that's what you feel at the conventions on a large scale, a really big scale in some cases. So yeah, uh, it was it was pretty remarkable um, being bombarded by that. Uh, the very first couple of shows I did, and uh, and consequently since then I've become to I've come to expect that and those in those situations. So I've gotten used to it. But but at the very beginning, yeah, that was pretty stunning. You know, because I had not been on a project or a show that had that kind of uh, reaction from fans before. Uh, very different. Uh, it's eye-opening, I can tell you that. Uh, you mean there wasn't a Death Wish 3 panel out there yeah, in the world for it? <laughs> no, no, okay. I could have sworn there was a convention for Death Wish movies. Oh, <laughs> yeah, none of that, man. I, I, you know, I... The horror, some horror shows, you know, Walking Dead and a few others might have a couple of conventions here and there, perhaps, but that still isn't like the Trek stuff, you know, not really like the Trek stuff. Yeah. That is really a very different beast, that is, yeah. You know, I've always found, too, that, like, going to those conventions, it's such a such a communal sort of experience, and, and you see and interact with just so many... Uh, lovely people i mean i'm always just from the fans perspective so i you know obviously you would have different experiences but it's just it's it seems like the outpouring of love it must feel so profound for you and and oh and yeah gratifying yeah. yeah it's um like i said it's pretty it's very concentrated and it's very intense um and very consistent uh in those situations um they, they are simply enamored and uh in the show and very involved in the, in the show and, and committed to it. They're invested in it. And uh, they see you as almost literally, literally the living walking character, you know, even though you're not in costume or makeup, just see you as that character. You know, that's, it's what television does in general. Television and films have something going on that just, it just changes people. Uh, changes people's perspective of of you. If you were not on the show and you bumped into them in a, in a supermarket, you're not gonna, you wouldn't even notice. You might be annoyed. You know, um, if they're your friends, it's just like, oh, let's get together in a movie. But if you are on that screen and they only know you through that screen, and it changes everything. It, it just changes everything. It changes everything, even for the average person, uh, it, it just does something, you know, to see them in a, in playing a role on a big screen or a movie, whatever, and then all of a sudden you're shaking hands with them. It's a, it's a different experience, you know? And, you know, um, I've worked with people that I grew up watching on television and the movies, uh, and those were, you know, big deals. When I was growing up, going to the movies was a big deal. And it was a lot of spectacle in that and, uh, and watching them and getting a chance to meet them and, you know, having enjoyed the stuff that they did and things. And I've been right there, man. I was at, uh, I was at a, I don't know, some signing show somewhere. And I've met a couple of people at signing shows that I grew up watching on television. I was like, oh man, that's so cool. It was so cool to get a chance to sit, to meet them and shake their hands and talk to them. And even got a picture with them. What is it? Um, 
Dawn Wells from Gilligan's Island. Oh yeah. <laughs> photo from her at a, at a convention. She was two tables down from me and we're all both sitting there signing stuff. But I thought, oh my God, Gilligan's Island, what a kick. I'd go over and talk to her and tell her I just enjoyed her work and it was so much fun watching him all the time. Um, and, you know, just because in my, from my point of view, just because we enjoyed, you know, they brought us that much, you know, enjoyment and laughter and whatever it might be. And you just want to thank them for that yeah. in yeah. person. And that's kind of the basis of it. And then it just goes up and levels from there, you know? <laughs> so uh, I can't say that I'm not uh, guilty of the same thing. Well, it's so interesting too, because one of your early um, roles in Star Trek was on Generations, where you got to share scenes with with James D. Kirk, and Walter right. Koenig, and 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 Montgomery uh, uh, James Doohan, Montgomery Scott, of course, and and your your career, you've worked with Walter Koenig again multiple times now, and yep. and also, um, oh God, I'm going to forget his name, um, Captain of the Enterprise B uh, from Ferris Bueller's Day Off, who, uh, oh yes, Alan Ruck. Alan Wright, oh, yes, yeah. of course. Uh, yes, um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and he had been yeah. in uh, Gods, Gods and... Uh, Gods, yeah, Gods yeah, and, and Alan was great. Um, amazing. It was a pleasure to work. It was such a thrill to work with all those guys on, uh, on Generations, uh, on the bridge of the, of the Enterprise. You know, yeah. um, uh, it was a really very cool week uh, to book the show to be in. But I mean, it was Rick Berman who brought me in for that. So mm. um, I don't even think I had to read for that. I just... He hmm. just cast me in it and uh, I'd already worked for him twice, you know, on, on Deep Space Nine and, and Next Gen in a guest role. So they just brought me in to do it. And during that week we were filming, I was there about three days. I think I worked three days, something like that. But a couple of times during the three days, he did come up to me and he said, you know, we're developing a new series called Voyager. And oh, wow. I'd like to have you come and read for it. Awesome. So this was months before that time. Yeah. Um, before they put the breakdown out and had the, the roles ready to go. But he mm. told me twice during that week that he was interested in having me read for this role. Mm. I mean, he made it a point of saying that. I thought, well, like I said, I don't want to be, you know, away on an episode of some nonsense and miss out on the opportunity yeah. uh, to be on a show that it could last for seven years. So. Yeah. It's that's so interesting. I had no idea it happened on, uh, on generations of the set for that. That's really cool. Oh that's yeah. Awesome. It was, they were already in development on Voyager huh. at that wow. time. They were putting it together. Hmm. Yeah. The next series as it were. Yeah. It was just yeah. such peak Star Trek at the time. There was so much coming out. There was like Next Generation. Yeah. There's movies, Deep Space Nine, and then absolutely, Voyager. absolutely, yes. man. They rebooted that thing, and they rebooted all the way. You know, it again. At all, UPN. I know the network didn't last that long because they didn't have much else to put on there. But um, the show had a very the show's audience is very dedicated. There is a franchise. There's merchandising up the wazoo, and they all you know make money on all of that stuff as well. Uh, although the show never, never got beyond a certain point in the ratings, uh, it was always around, ours hovered around, I think 80, I don't know if you're, at least if you were aware of it, I don't know what did, but somewhere around 80 out of 150 shows. It was always somewhere in that range. I think all of them were probably in that range. We have a dedicated audience. We have an enthusiastic audience. We have a, we have a hysterical audience when it comes to Trek. We just don't have the same numbers as your doctor, lawyer, cop shows that are incessantly rebooted and rebooted and rebooted. Um, 
those have the widest margin of audience. We don't have the audience of, you know, well, Housewives of Orange County or whatever it might be. We don't have the audience. And that crowd is not watching Star Trek. No. You know, a few Trek might watch some of that stuff, but for the most part, they're not, not crossing. And those shows get a wider base. Uh, the comedies, uh, the domestic comedy, the sitcoms, all those shows have a huge fan base, which might include some Trek people. But it doesn't work the other way around. Those folks aren't coming to Trek. Trek has its own audience. It's just not in numbers, not as big as fucking Baywatch, okay? Baywatch, you know, Trek's popular in Germany and Great Britain. But in Europe as a whole, oh my God. You know, I've been there. I've seen the fanaticism. It's like Beatlemania for Baywatch at that time. Um, and that's just, it just, they have a wider appeal in terms of numbers. So if a network looking at numbers, all they're looking at is commercials and time and rating and whatever. So they want you up in the top 20. And that's, those are the shows that, you know, you're, you're booted if you're not up in the top 20. We have always been, we were in syndication. So it was a different situation with us um we have a better chance of staying on for a longer period of time if that was a network show it wouldn't have lasted more than three weeks kill yeah. because there's not enough people who are into specifically star trek um worldwide star wars may have a bigger audience um just in terms of the general thing um uh but uh, trek is very specific it's very I don't know that Lisa's aware. I don't, you know, we, there's, there's again, something about, there's something about the people that watch and enjoy our show. It's very specific mm-hmm. within our society. It's, there's something about those folks. Um, you can describe them in a number of different ways, but they, uh, that, that, the, the hardcore the fans that really are dedicated to it are looking at the show and seeing the show in a very different light than seeing down and watching a you know ncis new orleans you know or, or nypd blue it's just not the same yeah it's not the same thing and as much as they may like nypd blue they're just the investment in it is not the same as it is in a trek show a trek concept you know, uh, we get lampooned and ridiculed all the time because the fans are seen as kind of wacky and you know off center. And, you know, so there's a stigma attached to the show because of that, because the media sometimes makes fun of the show or the fans, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, because they're that enthusiastic. People don't go to conventions or dress up like NYPD Blue. They go to conventions, dress up like, you know, Trek characters, and they see that as, you know, they, you know, as, as an oddball thing. Although, you know, the fans that are sitting in the end zone of football games dressed up in giant horns and paint body paint, I don't know how that's any less fanatic or crazy to me. That's about the same. Um, but as an accepted thing on a widespread basis, Trek is, you know, the Trek audience has always seen over the top in terms of that enthusiasm. And, and that's the stigma it carries. Uh, so the number of people, that watch the show and get into the show is not as great. Plus it's science fiction and there's technical issues going on and things that you have to be smart enough to understand. You have to 
people get lost if they, you know, start talking about something in subspace and they don't know what the hell you're talking about. So they don't feel as connected to the story. Science fiction in general takes imagination and a lot of folks don't have it. So if you don't spoon feed them and beat them over the head with something simple and mundane, they just, they don't get it. And that's also a big chunk of people that, that wouldn't watch the show. You have to be um, smart enough, uh, first of all, to understand science fiction, to appreciate science fiction. You have to be more imaginative to, to understand and, 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 and figure out what's going on as opposed to, you know, Housewives of Orange County. I, mean, I don't know. Sorry. That's, <laughs> it's, there's just a difference between the two. And there's just a lot more of them than there are us. And that's why, you know, you have the numbers were never that high. Star Trek is just, just the way it is. Right? But I think it really has endured, though. I mean, I understand that, that Voyager is like one of the top shows on Netflix right now. Yeah, it's, it's going to have, because the audience, um, I mean, Netflix is everywhere. And, yeah. uh, and the audience has access to it all the time. And so that that uh, they, and they watch these shows incessantly over and over and over and over. Mm -hmm. So those numbers are all gonna add up. It's not like they just watch it once and then they put it to bed and don't watch it again. They watch those shows constantly. And as long as they're on, they're going to watch them constantly. Voyager, again, I think is the most popular because man, we could tell all kinds of stories, you know, and you could tune in in the middle of season three and see a story that you know, it's completely unrelated to the one that was three weeks earlier. It's just like, it's standalone. Oh, what's this? Oh, you know, uh, you can actually tune in and get on into that show without a whole lot of problem. Yeah. Um, there were some, obviously some character relationships that went on as an arc all the way through it. But, but for the most part, you could tune in and watch that show and get into it pretty quick and easy. Whereas I think that would be harder for Deep Space Nine or, or for Next Gen because you have it, it, there's continuing relationships to all these characters that are in there and they keep coming and going through the loop. Whereas we would, you know, encounter this group and then and that's it. And we're, we're off to something else. Yeah. And I think that's what makes that show so much easier to tune into and, and to get into if you haven't watched it from the beginning. But, mm -hmm. uh, but with it streaming, like it's doing now, you know, all you had before was what, um, maybe a repeat on the on the series maybe a repeat episode maybe a dvd otherwise now you can do whatever the hell you want um, yeah. whatever season whatever episode it doesn't matter what it is just bring it up man and, <laughs> and, and people are doing that and that's why i think it's so much more popular there are people who are the fans who are also raising their kids watching voyager Mm -hmm. So if you go to a convention, people are watching it who are actually watching it for the first time. Yeah. And because it, it's science fiction, of course, um, it's got legs as far as, um, you know, it's not going to be dated, you know, mm -hmm. by 2025. Yeah. It's not going to be dated for some time, you know, because it's science fiction. You know, that stuff doesn't exist, um, you know, and it's not going to exist like that for a long time. So, so you, it doesn't get old in terms of the types of stories and the special mm -hmm. effects are decent enough to hold up for a while. And uh, so it's not going anywhere. It's, 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 it's got that kind of, all the other shows are going to age. They're going to contemporary shows are going to age over time. Yeah. Um, but ours, there's no tech issues, consumer tech issues and things like that. All this stuff is in the future. So it can't age. Yeah. 
one of the advantages yeah. of watching sci-fi material to begin with. I think it's so true. And I think it, it particularly Voyager and all the Star Trek too, that it's, it, there's such good moral lessons to learn from watching that show. Like I will absolutely be, if I ever do have kids, you know, uh, I will absolutely be making them watch Star Trek and that'll be <laughs> from birth. That'll be something that they will be watching. <laughs> and, and because you, you take so much from it and, and so much of my own this moral philosophy is, is was developed because of because of Star Trek and because of the original yeah. series, because of Picard and, and Spock, and you know, it's such a, a positive thing to to have, and and it's exciting, you know, it's exciting. Yeah. Show, so it's um, like I said, you have to have some modicum of imagination and um, you know, and some uh, I say intelligence, but something you know, an awareness and appreciation for things that are outside the norm, you know. Um, science fiction challenges the human condition. That's one thing I like about the genre in general. It challenges the human condition. They put people in situations that they would not normally be in and how would they react? How do they do this? How do they, you know, uh, it changes our perspectives on how we look at things um, because we see them from a different light and that's what Trek loves to do. Um, it, it, it shakes our, uh, our views and our perspectives by you know throwing us a curveball it's like what you thought was going to be this turns out not to be yeah. uh, in a sense a perfect example you know here we are trying to save the children and we need to discover that they're actually elderly people who are about to die well that's sci-fi man we just flipped it on its head that's the way you know that science fiction works and uh, you can't tell that story in a contemporary setting just can't do it so only in science fiction can you explore the impossible. You can explore the improbable. You can explore the unknown. And um, I think just in terms of, you know, the, the DNA, you just have to have an appreciation for that kind of thing. You know, somebody else will look at it and just go like, you know, just over there. Just, they don't, they're not interested. Yeah. You know, and that's, uh, that's the way they are, you know. And, and by the same token, I'm not interested in whatever that mundane nonsense is. I mean, I, you, you, I, that would be torture for me. I mean, they just wanted to get some information from me and s strap me down and force me to watch some reality show. <laughs> I wouldn't last an hour. So um, I can't do it. You know, yeah. I, I gotta, you gotta feed the brain, you gotta feed the yeah. mind, you, know, you gotta give me something that's, you know, that's interesting and different. So I gravitate to the genre in general. So well, kind of I'm sure we're working on now. What's that? I just want to ask, uh, ask what you projects you're working on now. One is a biopic from the early uh, 1900s, which would have been World War One. Wow. Uh, and it's, uh, it's a biopic about a, an American, a black American uh, pilot who flew for the French army in World War One. Wow. Uh, fascinating story. Uh, and mm -hmm. it's all true, basically. Um, so I'm working on a biopic script for that matter, uh, and I'm, I've also got a, a science fiction series project, which is an action hero uh, concept, um, and it's uh, pretty fascinating. It's called Time Fighters. It's pretty good. So awesome. Working on that as well with another producer, and he's just putting the, there. It's a it's um, over at uh, Global Genesis Group, which is. Uh, uh, production company that uh, they sent a few feature films up thus far, and I think they also did a series too. Um, and they're looking at uh, trying to sell it uh, to one of the streaming networks for uh, mm -hmm. for production. We'll see. 
that's a hell of a process, man, because somebody's got, yeah. somebody's got to champion the thing and take it on under their wing and, and finance it and do whatever uh, to get it to happen. So not easy at all. Um, no. But that's, that's the, the two. And there's a couple other projects people have approached me on um, for directing, which are mm-hmm. their projects and they just want me to come and shoot them. Um, they're feature projects. One is a, one is a not a rom-com, but sort of a dramedy, sort of feel-good uh, inner-city project. Uh, the other one is uh, Tops. What's the other one? Oh, no, that was not. No, no it's just Tops, I think. So it's one called Tops. It's pretty cute. It's a cute little story. Simple and not, not complicated or anything. Just a feel-good little uh, dramedy. So that one... And those three, those, you know, basically stuff that's going on. A couple of pilot That sounds like you're busy. Yeah, I mean, it comes and goes. It comes and goes. Sometimes, you know, I won't have time in the week to get anything done. And then other times I'm sitting around twiddling my thumbs because we're waiting either for somebody to make the next move or waiting for the script to be revised or waiting for whatever. And I have to, you know, I have to... uh, uh, and it, sometimes it just comes in waves and you have to do everything at the same time. And it, and it's quite the juggling act. I'm mean, going to have to keep notes on my computer. Yeah. Because they go from one script and story that we're, you know, revising or making notes on. Then I go to another one and I'm revising back and forth. Then we go to another one. And just keeping up with that stuff sometimes is pretty crazy. So, uh, yeah. But that's where I want to put uh, most of my energy in these days is just to get one of my own projects up and running. Yeah. 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 So where can we find you on uh, social media? It's all uh, Twitter is Tim Russ two um, at Tim Russ two and the number two it's Tim Russ two mm-hmm. and the number two. So we're um, and my pictures on there, you know, hit me up and and um, on Facebook it's just me under my name and um, I post stuff if it's a project that's going or a project that just took off or project that's whatever. I'll post it on there so people can follow it or check it out and see it. Um, and if it's uh, most of the, <laughs> most of the stuff on Facebook and Twitter is not going to be about Trek. It's going to be political stuff. Sorry. Um, that's mostly what I post on Twitter and Facebook, but I will post the projects now and then, you know, and um, I've got some stuff I've done. I'm an amateur astronomer. So, um, I did a uh, three or four or five appearances on um, Discovery Science series called NASA's Unexplained Files about a year and a half ago. I was on their last season of that uh, as a contributor. Uh, and uh, because I've been doing astronomy for about 35 years. And once in a while, I'll post some stuff, um, images that, I'm, that I've taken from uh, one of the telescopes I've got. Uh, on there as well, which is completely out of, you know, it has to do with space and science, but it's not fiction. It's, I mean, not nonfiction, it's real. So it's cool. I'll put that on there once in a while, you know, when I get them. But a lot of stuff is mostly political. Um, I don't really do much. I don't post anything really about Trek. Uh, the followers I have, are, a lot of them are Trek fans and sure. they stuff up all the time, but, but I don't generally do it. It's mostly that. So if anybody is... And this podcast goes to my Twitter page or Facebook. <laughs> be aware uh, <laughs> or be warned ahead of time that I am 
pretty heavy handed in that stuff. So uh, I think we need more uh, heavy handed people in this country. Like there's uh, <laughs> we need we need some uh, someone to knock some sense into certain certain people. <laughs> I, uh, you know, it would make a really it has made uh, good science fiction stories. George Orwell wrote about it. 1984 and i'll be damned if we're not living it um yeah it is absolutely the most relevant relevant thing uh right now in this country um you know climate change is worldwide but in terms of our politics and things like that here this is this is a crisis for us and it's it is very serious people don't realize how serious it is Mm -hmm. they haven't been paying attention for the last four years uh, they need to pay attention to the next four years because the the repercussions of that uh, this last four years are we are feeling those waves across the world. And I don't, I don't I, you know, uh, when people are fanatically believing in absolute nonsense, yeah, uh, point blank nonsense, mm-hmm. stuff that you don't have to even you know prove or otherwise. It's just on its face nonsense desperately believing in that and lives living their lives based on that taking actions based on that and passing laws laws that govern us based on nonsense Mm -hmm. and that's very serious yeah serious man i don't care what level or anywhere else nothing at this point in time is more serious than that so that's generally what I have on social media, whatever information I can gather, whatever I can pass forward and make people aware of. Hopefully those folks might, um, you know, look at it, might back it up, might confirm it or look it up to, uh, to check on it, might pass it to someone else, uh, might change their perspectives on things, might become more aware, might become more active might mm-hmm. even run for office at some point. I don't know, just it, it's, people need to be you know, educated and they need to be part of that discussion. They need to be you know, uh, enlightened and aware of what in the hell is going on. Much of which is right in front of our eyes. I mean, no, it, a, it ain't a giant, it's not a James Bond movie plot, man. It's not Orient Express who did it. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> it's right there in front of us. And if you can't see it, man, there's something wrong. Yeah. You know, I wish it, you know, if it had been, it'd be much more dangerous if it was covert. It's not covert, it's overt. And uh, you can't miss it. So a lot of the stuff is on there that's, uh, that's, and I'll break it up once in a while. Like I said, I'll put a joke on there or something, you know, to do with astronomy or some shit or uh, projects that I worked on uh, that, that'll, that'll go on and, you know, do what they do. So, yeah, there you I go. Well, we've taken up enough of your time already. So, uh, Tim Russ, thank you so much for being here. It was an absolute pleasure. Um, If you want to uh, get in touch with us listeners, uh, we are at Inglorious Trek on uh, Twitter and Inglorious Trek Experts on Facebook and Instagram. Um, Beyond encouraging people to get their vaccines, we tend to keep the politics uh, just here on the podcast, actually. Um, Our reviewers (laughs) like to complain about how much politics we talk about on here. But do you guys talk about a lot? (laughs) We do, apparently. I don't think we do, but uh, apparently sometimes. Sometimes. We we support vaccinations. We'll say that. Yes, we do. (laughs) And, yeah, uh, 110%. yeah. Common common sense, man. I like I said, uh, I don't feel like you know we you know I I've been on a couple of interviews here and there where it's gotten pretty hot and heavy in the politics. Generally, it's not, and I didn't feel it was 
we didn't probably talk about it at all on this one. And, you know, just just buttoning up the stuff that I just as a heads up for my website, for my uh, Twitter and Facebook page for those who would tune in. Uh, there may be new followers and new whatever, and they come on. And I kind of have to remind people anyway uh, on there that if they're going to follow or tune in, you know, be aware. Uh, you know, I'm not talking about, you know, uh, pictures of what I had for dinner last night and watching <laughs> my dog or whatever it might be. I, it's, it's just kinda, I don't give a rat's ass about any of that stuff, man. You know, it's just it's it, it, that's not what's important at this point. You know, you turn around one day and you won't be able to afford to buy your food or anything else. Um, that's what needs to be considered. And, uh, people aren't going to wear it, man. I see it going on right now with the climate and everything else. So it's coming. It's so weird. Like, I mean, I, I was, I'm digressing because I was wrapping up, but it's so weird though, because like I, I feel like I, I became a, a liberal because of Star Trek and, and I learned so many valuable lessons in terms of just how to see the world. And, and yet yeah. I, I'm shocked. There's so many like, you know, different conservative minded people who, who also just, they adore Star Trek. I'm like, how does this work for, yeah. I, I don't understand. I Not don't understand. Moron, man. I've run into them as well. They're yeah. fans yeah. that followed me on Twitter that, yeah. you know, I've had to either block them or drop them or do whatever um, because they're hardcore fans and they are, just bent they're sideways you know yeah and i've had to tell them i said how can you watch trek of any kind and be you know a right-wing nutball at the same time that just doesn't i mean what are you watching what are you why (laughs) are you bothering to watch that show you know yeah it makes absolutely no sense I mean, if you're, you know, watching, like I said, uh, NYPD Blue or something like that, and you're a hardcore conservative, okay, fine, whatever. You know, there's not going to be that much correlation. There's something about Trek that is nothing to do with that kind of philosophy. It's the opposite yeah. of that. Yes. Older opposite of that. And you're, you know, it's... It, science fascinates me, uh, not just science fiction, but hard science has always fascinated me. And there's something to the construct of DNA. There's something to, to how and why people, how they function, how they think, what their brain processes are, whether it's a nurturing thing or whether it's a natural thing for them to, to able to come to that mindset as they're watching something that's completely different than that mindset. And it's just, it's, you can't, you can't, you just can't do anything about it, man. You know, uh, you, you, I, it boggles the mind. You know, you don't yeah. know if, it's, if there's some other reason that they're doing this. And, you know, some people are mouthpieces out there for uh, yeah, Africa. I, I look at it as African-Americans. It's along the same parallel that other African-Americans that embrace the Republican Party or embrace Trump or embrace, I'm looking at them going, <laughs> What's the disconnect? Why is there such a yeah. disconnect? And, you know, uh, and I know in a, some of those cases, they're actually being paid to do so. Mm. Uh, they're wow. trolls and they get paid to, to do that. Literally, yeah. they get paid. Mm-hmm. Um, so I get that. I understand that. I, the mechanics are there. It's not like it's a mystery. I understand. I don't like it, but I understand it. But to not be paid and to feel that way, it, what's the, where is, what is the identity issue when they look in the mirror, what are they actually seeing? Yeah. Are they aware of their history? Are they aware of anything going on in this country? How do you embrace 
someone who treats you that way, you know, being who you are. It's a mystery to me, man. I, you know, it's, a, it you, have to go, you have to refer to the psychologist. It may be on page 23 of the book. We don't know. <laughs> um, probably is. Uh, maybe one of these days I'll find somebody who's in that business and ask what the f- is going on with that. <laughs> and they'll probably have yeah. a long fucking Latin word for it. You know, <laughs> we'll have to see. <laughs> I think we should get, we, this should be the panel at the next uh, Star Trek. The panel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't get that question too often. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Tim Russ, thank you so much again for being here. This is thank absolutely you. fantastic. I uh, am. I'm, I'm just. I've been a fan for so long, and so it's it's an honor to speak with you, sir. Oh, it's, it's my uh, pleasure. Man. Absolutely you, fantastic. Man. Appreciate it. Um, so before we wrap up, though, we need to make sure to thank uh, our sound engineer, Bill Ritter, as well as um, our executive producers, Mark Altman and Dean Devlin, and our producer, Natalie Muscali, and uh, everyone else at Electric Entertainment. Um, so for Tim Russ, Lisa Clink, and myself, I'd like to say thank you all listeners for being here. Get vaccinated and uh, keep vaccinated. on yes. <laughs> and keep on trekking ingloriously, of course. This show is produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.